Just a quick apology for the sound quality on this particular episode, at least from my end. For some reason, there was a lot of background noise, and it seems there's a lot of background noise this time, too. So, apologies. Enjoy anyway. Thank you. Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Nick Briggs, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the deep task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Did I say story odor? I meant story order. Yes. That's I just what thought I mean. it was my late grandparent saying story odor. Story story order. Yeah, I did <laughs> which would refer to them watching their soap operas sequentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watch the stories and odor. Uh, yes. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, my name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally deep three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. Whose grandparents obviously pronounce things weirdly, too. But that's fine. If you like what you're hearing, though I don't know how, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, masks and mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you have buried them deep in the earth and have them guarded by a gigantic, massive green creature with a gigantic, massive green set of teeth. I knew you thought I was going somewhere else with that. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Is the mask like a COVID mask or like a luchador mask? 
you know what? I should look into trying to come up with luchador masks because the COVID mask thing, we've never had to give any out. Patreon has this weird thing whereby you have to be at a certain level to be eligible for that. And it's like, anyway, they're highly collectible because there are so few of them. (laughs) And also they're not very useful because they're cloth masks and they're very small. So I would suggest trying to go for a mug or a (laughs) t-shirt. Purely sentimental value. Yeah, exactly. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, maskless all of them. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Somewhere one of these masks is mounted on a wall in a shadow box. (laughs) Never actually used, but preserved for posterity. Either that or it's on a dartboard. I'm almost certain it's on a dartboard somewhere. Does it have our photos on it? Uh, it should. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue our review of Tom Baker's penultimate season with David Fisher's novelization of his own script for Creature from the Pit. Without further ado... Here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Creature from the Pit, adapted by David Fisher from a script that aired from 102779 to 111779, published by Target in January 1981. As of this recording in March of 2022, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. And in fact, that unabridged audiobook is fairly recent and may even indeed be a rescripting. I'm not absolutely sure, but there you go. We actually have an audiobook of this one. You may remember that David Fisher was not a fan of Terrence Dick's novelizations, and this will be the first of two we will get from him adapting his own work. And even though we just read City of Death, which itself was based on a Fisher script, this actually was the first story of the season to be produced because the Dalek scripts were delayed, and thus this is actually the first story that Lala Ward is playing Romana. Unhappily for Ward, neither Fisher nor the costume designer were aware that she would be playing the part differently. And among the other changes Fisher made to the script were some ultimately unsuccessful attempts to give her a characterization different to that of Mary Tam. So if it seems like she's literally acting like her old self, and if she looks on screen like she's dressing like her old self, she is. But it doesn't last, thank goodness. Ward's philosophy of approaching Doctor Who was actually much closer to Tom Baker's, which led to them inevitably getting closer, as Mm. they did. Yes. This story also didn't make the higher-ups at the BBC very happy either. Although, if you watched this story and read this book, you might be inclined to blame Douglas Adams for all the comedy and producer Graham Williams for letting Tom Baker wag the producer. But Douglas Adams actually was doing his best to rein in all the comedy that Fisher had injected into the script, which is why we get the novelization, which actually has a lot more of it put back in. And Graham Williams was at this point very ill, and he had delegated most of his duties to production unit manager John Nathan Turner, whom he unsuccessfully tried to promote to associate producer. These were elements that caused the higher-ups to want to keep an eye on the production of the show, which led the head of serials from the BBC to ask former producer Barry Letts to do so informally. Keep those last two things in mind, won't you? Thank you. 
So what did they fear they might get up to? They thought, or at least the head of Serials thought, that the show was getting way too comedic, which Mm. is true. They thought that Tom Baker was getting way too in control of the show, which is also true. And they were really worried about the visual effects, which leads me to my next point. In fact, (laughs) probably the biggest problem for this particular serial, and I mean that quite literally, was the creature. When it finally came time to realize Irato, the designers gave him what is described as a lengthy, flexible proboscis. <laughs> and I want to show you both some screenshots of what that looks like. because I assume he'll be drinking from a flower, right? <laughs> that is Irato greeting the doctor and Organon. Oh my, very pleased to see them. Yes, and that is Tom Baker trying to communicate with Arato. At one point, he blows into this thing. Man, that is not what a proboscis usually looks like. It's not like the elegant curly cue that I was visualizing. Not at all. As a matter of fact, when this thing got rolled onto the set, one worker in the studio, upon first seeing it, was said to have remarked, Ooh, he's a big boy, isn't he? Well, that explains (laughs) the cover art. Yes, it would. (laughs) Yes, this is indeed the same proboscis that Tom Baker will later blow into on screen when attempting to communicate. Erato's response to this is, of course, unrecorded. A few notables in the cast. This is the first story to feature David Brierley as the voice of K-9 for only one of three televised stories, thank goodness. Eileen Way, who played the old woman in the very first Doctor Who story in 1963, played Corella. Hmm. And Organon was played by Jeffrey Bailden, who was actually offered the role of the first Doctor in 1963 and turned it down because he didn't want to do a series. And he would later go on to play an alternate First Doctor in two Big Finish audio dramas alongside Caroline Ford as Susan. So they're digging deep in the vaults for actors. Yes, they are. And it's kind of interesting that they got these two particular ones because they both harken back to 1963. Mm -hmm. What is an alternate First Doctor? An alternate First Doctor is the First Doctor, in this case, if he had never left Gallifrey. So it's not Hartnell. It is Jeffrey Bailden, who is not quite doing a Hartnell doctor. I know it, it's kind of weird, but that's what that whole Big Finish alternate doctor series is about. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do us the honors? Sure. The planet Chloris is very fertile, but metal is in short supply and has therefore become extremely valuable. A huge creature with most unusual physical properties arrives from an alien planet which can provide Chloris with metal from its own unlimited supplies in exchange for chlorophyll. However, the ruthless Lady Adrasta has been able to exploit the shortage of metal to her own advantage and has no wish to see the situation change. The Doctor and Romana land on Chloris just as the creature's alien masters begin to lose patience over their ambassador's long absence. The action the aliens decide to take will have devastating consequences for Chloris, unless something is done to prevent it. Most unusual physical characteristics. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. (laughs) Oh yeah, that back cover gives away everything, doesn't it? As usual. Fortunately, I 
always forget them as soon as I read them. That's a good thing. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah this one just kind of... Straight to the second to last chapter. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, Dalton, what was your first impression of this one? I immediately thought about the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> the creature from mm-hmm. the pit. The creature that is a pit. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then the, the cover itself, I don't know. The Doctor, again, kind of has this weird look on his face some figure we we don't know who it is out of frame is brandishing a sword in his face and he's worried yeah it's just like okay well this doesn't give me a whole lot the figure in the background i assumed was was the lady adrasta exactly and then like allison said once i read the back cover i didn't really remember much of that yeah okay and how about you allison your first impression uh, once again, we have the doctor being menaced by a fertility totem. <laughs> a dress looks kind of fabulous here. Mm-hmm. I did actually remember, okay, so there's going to be a whole conflict over chlorophyll and minerals and the importance, presumably, of a balanced diet. <laughs> but I did not immediately figure out that the creature must be the ambassador. If I had thought about it at all, it probably would not have been hard, but I did not make that effort. A very Dixian prologue, what with the death and all. And yet not Dix at all. Nope. Not in the least. I guess we should cut right to the heart of it, because this is David Fisher. We've never read anything by David Fisher in print before. We've read novelizations of his stories, but we've never really seen him unfiltered. In the way that we do here. <laughs> what do we think of him as a writer? Something about me through this whole book was annoyed. <laughs> okay. And I, I can't quite put a finger on it. It may just be that the story itself is a little just blah for me. Just a tad bit, yeah. Because, you know, reading through your notes and looking at the things that I have highlighted, there's a lot of things that if it was another author writing it I would have been totally pleased with so I don't know if my feeling is just the story versus the writer Mm -hmm. because I think he handled it well there were lots of wonderful bits in there that I actually really liked so it's probably just the story kind of giving me a metallic taste in my mouth (laughs) (laughs) is it old batteries (laughs) yes (laughs) oh that's right because uh, the creatures described as smelling like old car batteries Mm-hmm. Which is a lovely little bit of description, and you don't ever get it on screen, but yeah. Allison, what did you think, in general, of the prose compared to what we've had? The story was completely forgettable, and we've seen parts of all of it before, but I actually liked a lot of the humor that he brought to it, and Dix does as well. But this is a, a little different style, so I really liked the way he presented Aragnon and his... I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, Organon. Organon, Organon. sorry. Aragnon. Sorry. <laughs> I love See? that. I was... Aragno. Aragno, <laughs> yes. <laughs> With his sort of, you know, wisdom of how to keep the grift going and the diplomacy of, of being a prophet, and, you know, you have to make plans for if things go catastrophically or nothing happens at all, that either way, you see your prophecy still holds up over time. And uh, for the other two, Aratu and his comrade, who were uh, greedy and stupid between them. One was greedy and the other was stupid. So there, I thought there was a lot of, there were a lot of fun things he brought to the story. Okay, you were thinking about the miners. That's yes. right, Anu and... The miners uh, and the prophet, yes, I thought were nice comic relief. Yeah, which means we probably just need to talk about this story because one of the most famous reviews of the story, or at least a line that I remember quite 
clearly from the Doctor Discontinuity Guide, says that some consider this story to be a spoof of bad science fiction. On the other hand, it could just be bad science fiction. Mm. <laughs> sort of Poe's law of sci-fi, yeah. They're not far wrong because the story, well, what do we think? You said it was forgettable. Is it merely forgettable or is it bad in the way that people seem to think that it is? Or I mean, it's scientifically stupid, but most of the Doctor Who stories are. So, I mean, if that was really uh, something that made me put the book down, I would have been done oh. with this years ago. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry if that's no. harsh, but it's no. it's scientifically silly, but many of them are, and it's not hard sci-fi. I think that's okay. Well, I was wondering which bit specifically you thought was scientifically silly. Dragging a neutron star through space to, to eradicate a solar system. The reason why I ask that is because one part of the script was actually consulted on with some researchers at Cambridge. And it's the bit where Arato weaves a shell of aluminum. Actually, they pronounce it aluminium, of course, because they're British and all. <laughs> yes. But they weave a shell of aluminum around the neutron star. And that part was consulted on. And that's the part that people tend to think of as the most scientifically silly. That part actually makes some sense. I was thinking more of the life cycle of consuming... Purely minerals, except in the larval stage, consuming purely chlorophyll. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that, because that's actually new to the script. This is the first Target book that we have ever had that is even hinted at sex. Luckily, it's the sex practices of the Tythonians, but... We had the doctor being impregnated a while back. Impregnated. When was yes. that? Uh, not impregnated so much as being a surrogate. Oh, the nucleus of the swarm. Yes. We're thinking about invisible enemy. Yeah, but that's not sex. That's just being careless. It was asexual reproduction with an extremely randy description of hot rhythmic breathing, breathing if I recall. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. When the um, nucleus of the swarm gets into its little tank, it really kind of starts going to town. But this is the first time <laughs> it's called sex. The first time it's actually called reproduction. And it's very, for those who have not read this book, there is a lengthy, and I mean lengthy, dissertation on the reproductive cycle of the Tythonians. It takes a while. Yes, it does. Well, which part? The dissertation or the yes. reproductive cycle? <laughs> yes. Both, both. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it is ridiculously long. <laughs> Back to Arado. Yeah, it is ridiculously long. And you said it was scientifically silly. In in what way? Even though I know exactly. Oh, what I'm not saying. prepared to defend my. <laughs> Well, you're not wrong, because, my God, did we need it? Let me ask you that. We don't get any of that on screen. Do we need it? No. Okay, why not? It doesn't add anything. Like, it's supposed to be there to kind of explain why they need the chlorophyll, but also, like, he just eats plants. So it's just <laughs> extra. It's like, we just need a lot of food when we're fucking. Um <laughs> That's about all it amounts to, to well, don't me, we anyway. All? I mean, really? Yeah, like, mm. you need a snack afterwards. Ordering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, and, I mean, it didn't really bother me. But if we're talking about it, yeah, it, it just seemed extra. It seemed like it was there to just add something to the story. Like, all of the 
the footnotes that we had. Like yes. we keep getting these little footnotes to describe these words that they're using. And it's like, well, you don't have to tell me what that is. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care that the sauce that they're dipping it in is literally just described as a sauce made of this plant. It's like, okay, yeah. And you didn't need to footnote that. It, it's extraneous. Yeah. We actually get a glossary with this book and yeah. it's got that kind of almost desperation to it doesn't it it's almost like david fisher saying oh well if terrence dix thinks that he can world build look what i can do it felt like it was trying to build a world with things that totally do not matter to the story okay so here's where my cheating is coming back to punish me because uh, I had Tom Baker read it to me for three or four oh, hours, and that was very oh. fun. <laughs> so now I'm actually scrolling through here, and I had only read about the first chapter or so and had a bit of a time crunch and listened to the rest of it. So yes, now mm-hmm. I'm seeing Elytrobe, the species of giant flowering lettuce unique to Chloris. I did not realize that there were all of these footnotes, and I don't think I'll be making these recipes anytime soon. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a lot of world building as if he's trying to write his own version of Dune. And this isn't Dune. Yeah. This is nowhere close to being Dune. No. It's not quite... Yeah. (laughs) There are all sorts of reasons. Oh, goodness, yes. Now I'm going to get into the the five-line one. Precise comparisons between Clostrian astrology and classic Terror astrology are not possible. Actually, Tom Baker did read all these. He just read them as part of the story as opposed to a footnote. If you were in a hurry, I guess you could uh, skip them. Yeah, like there's this one that says uh, she would without doubt crucify them upside down in a vat of boiling X-juice. Cross, cross. X-juice is the sap of a hardwood tree indigenous to Chlorin. Its sap closely resembles tar. It's like that doesn't add anything to the fact that she's going to boil them alive. Exactly. She could put boil them in water. She could boil them in ant piss. I don't <laughs> care. Like it doesn't matter. Having me like go read this extra thing is just no. Okay, now that I look at it and see two on the same page with instead of just having an asterisk for each one, each one has its own symbol set as if they were all appearing on the same page. I'm actually finding it very funny. Fondle is mm. a kind of wild turkey, peculiar chlorus. Uxal sauce is a kind of chutney made from uxal berries. I'm actually amused. Well, I think that's why they're there. But I think that's the only reason why they're there. And It actually seems like he's making fun of the story in a way that uh, this is the second time I've had this misperception. Infamously, there was, I forget which story, but I've referred to it so many times. You'd think it was my favorite and you'd think I'd remember the name. Uh, one where the writer refers to someone giving a very long-winded and tedious speech. And I thought he was making fun of the speech in the episode, but then he had actually, I, you, you told us, written the speech in the episode. Yes. So here I would think that the writer is making fun of the tedious world building in the episode, but he wrote the tedious world building in the episode right yes so it's a bit of a self-pone isn't it? <laughs> and it feels too like he's trying to do a douglas adams yeah like he's, he's trying to give us these little details that are supposed to be funny but it just doesn't come off not to me as something that's funny again it doesn't add anything to it it's just making me stop what i'm doing to look at the bottom of the page to read a description that doesn't matter yeah And this was written in January of 1981, so I do wonder, in fact, I I wish I had this in front of me because I have no way of looking it up right now, when Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was actually released, because if he's doing a Douglas Adams, 
Oh, yeah. So he may be trying to outdo Douglas Adams to some degree, but he is doing it in the wrong way. As a matter of fact, those footnotes strike me as the sort of thing that Terry Pratchett does in his books quite often. The difference is Terry Pratchett is a genius, and his footnotes are often funnier than the actual story that they're footnoted to. Or appended to, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, I feel like usually when there is the footnote, like the footnote adds something to the joke or it, it extends the joke or is the joke itself. Like it in the original text, it's, you know, whatever. But then once you read the footnote, it's like, oh, damn, that that's funny. Yes, <laughs> but... exactly. Yeah. None of these footnotes are as good or as memorable as the Bestiality Jones footnote in Terry Pratchett. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google Bestiality Jones Pratchett. I think I'll uh, keep safe search on for that. (laughs) It won't help you. It is incredibly funny. It is one of the funniest things I've ever read. This book is trying to be one of the funniest things I've ever read. It's not quite doing it. I mean, there are good bits. In fact, my notes are full of direct quotes. And I had to stop myself after a while because I was like, oh, this is a lot better than I thought. And then it started not quite annoying me in the way that it annoyed you, Dalton. But it got to the point where I was like, okay, we get it. It's clever. Let's just get on because I know this story still got this, this, this and this to do. Can we please just get on with it? A lot of it just felt pointless. It wasn't adding to anything. It's hard for me to say because the delivery I heard was so good that maybe oh, yeah. uh, maybe that made a big difference. I'm sure it did. This story is one that allows Tom Baker to be Tom Baker to his most Tom Baker-ishness. Which I often find kind of obnoxiously guffawing, yeah. like over the top and wasn't in this delivery here, but... He was doing all the characters, so there was more variety. And it's not like Fisher's not writing a good Doctor Who novelization, because he does get the Doctor and Romana and even K-9 just absolutely perfect, I find anyway. What did you all think of that? No, I I thought that the characterizations of of our three, you know, the Doctor and the two companions, I felt like they were spot on. Even, you know, you were saying before that this was kind of written as the old Romana. I could feel a little bit of that, but overall it felt like it was going towards something. I still didn't feel like Romana had a lot to do, but it did feel like a new character or a new version of her. One thing that kind of worked for me is that no one on Chloris is redeemable at all. <laughs> and that's actually an interesting, refreshing change, because we've seen this premise before, wherein our, or this, not, not the premise, but sort of opening scene where there's something horrible that happens on a planet, some kind of uh, mysterious death, and then the Doctor and one or more companions get there and are almost immediately separated, such that one of them is with some kind of ruling class of kings or priests or similar, and then one is with a rebel group, and it takes us a while to figure out, oh, the rebels are actually right and not so bad, and there's this good person in the government, but this other person is evil. They're all terrible, and that actually was kind of a refreshing change. (laughs) The Doctor saves a planet that doesn't have much to recommend it in terms of the virtues and conduct of any of the groups that we are presented with. We've got 
evil bloodthirsty ruler, evil bloodthirsty, I would say civil servant. Is assassination a civil service job? I'm not sure. <laughs> it should be. I, I did like the idea. That, you know, she should. She really should be drawing a pension by now, but she still has to, to keep up with this. You know, the rebels are, they're just pirates. They're just in it for economic gain. They're not interested in a better government, etc. And then when uh, Ratu, the ambassador, feels so refreshed and he's all sort of rosy-cheeked after he has murdered a Drosta, he's like, oh, I feel so better. I've gotten a meal. I've killed my enemies. (laughs) So the the casual brutality of the whole thing did kind of work, I thought, in context. There there are really not a lot of moral quandaries here. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I like that the doctor wants to save the planet just because you, you just can't go around blowing up planets full of sentient beings, even if they don't have a lot to recommend them. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the, the small stakes of this story are intentional because that was kind of a mandate that was handed down from Graham Williams that they wanted to stop having the doctor save the universe constantly. <laughs> I mean, he does save their solar system. Yeah. He does. He does. But it's a backwater. Yeah, as you said, there's really nothing to recommend it. If Chloris were to be wiped out tomorrow, it really wouldn't matter. But that actually does work as a moral story in that he still saves them. Yes. Even if they don't give him a good reason to. Yeah. And he's doing it because there's just kind of fun to be had. In fact, I know it sounds like we're shitting on Fisher here, but we're actually not. We're just saying it's a little overly clever. When he's really hitting all cylinders, he really does quite well with it, especially towards the end of chapter four, when he, I believe this is when he first meets Organon, as a matter of fact... And he says the doctor nodded sympathetically. He knew exactly how it was. It was the story of his own life. Over-elaboration, never knowing when to stop, always going that bit further, even when caution and good sense said you had gone far enough. How much trouble had he gotten himself into doing just that? A wise man would know when to call a halt. On the other hand, he reflected, a wise man could get bored out of his mind, whereas he had always enjoyed himself. It had been interesting, sometimes even fun. That is the fourth doctor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That is a wonderful distillation of the fourth doctor. What is it right after Organon's, you know, being taught, believe in yourself and others will believe in you, but he's applying it to, like, false prophecies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> talking about... The theatrics necessary for the delivery. (laughs) I do my arms like this and my voice like this. And then, you know, I always leave them happy or bewildered, ideally the (laughs) latter. Not too depressing. Totally confusing. That way you have time to beat a discreet but dignified retreat. Mm -hmm. And Organon's a fantastic character, too. Oh, yeah. Especially when he introduces himself. Astrologer extraordinary, seer to prince and princes and emperors. The future foretold, the past explained, the present apologized for (laughs) (laughs) and that's fisher when he's just going balls to the wall with it except he goes balls to the wall with it just a little too much in this one from time to time probably because he's trying to stick it to dicks (laughs) oh god it's just terrible isn't it like you said there are good moments where he kind of describes what characters are thinking and a lot of those come off really well. There was another one. It says, there were moments, Ramona thought, when I absolutely 
loathe that man. How dare he look so <laughs> cheerful when he's been trapped the far side of that shell with a huge <laughs> ravening whatever it is. How dare he appear yes. looking as if he's just returned from a five-mile hike when by the rules that govern the universe, he should have been torn limb from limb or squashed flatter than a crepe Suzette by a million tons of green blob. <laughs> yes! <laughs> And it's something like, okay, it's not a million. It's like a third of a It's fine. It's still heavy. There's a footnote there yeah. saying just <laughs> yeah. how much it weighs. And the response, when you get the doctor thinking, why even Romana looked miffed. Yes, yeah. miffed. That was the word. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there there are great moments of it, but it just it felt like overkill in a way. And so that kind of took some of the fun out of it. You know, you can't just keep hammering away. This is funny. This is funny. This is funny. Aren't you laughing? Ha 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 ha. At a certain point, it's like, just slow down a little bit. You're too caffeinated. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Let it breathe a little bit. It felt at times like there wasn't any space. And you can imagine then what the televised story must be like. Mm. Because this is what Fisher wanted that story to be. And Douglas Adams, of all people, is the one who's reining it in, whilst trying to also rein in Tom Baker, who definitely is eating this up. As a matter of fact, (laughs) Tom Baker is shown a clip of this in the uh, Tom Baker Years VHS collection. He's shown the clip where he's talking to Arato and blowing into the whatever, and he turns to the camera and says, well, I made a bit of a meal of it there, didn't I? (laughs) And he does. It's still bigger than life for a story that itself isn't bigger than life at all. It's kind of... Well, it's a bit like Androids of Tara, come to think of it. We had the same reaction to that one. And that was David Fisher as well. Yeah, it's it's like, I don't know, like going to see an improv set and the improvisers are just a little too eager. <laughs> so then it becomes a mess. Oh, God. Studiously zany. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I have had that happen. When I used to go to Second City here a lot, there was one performer. He will remain nameless because he's gone on to some measure of slight fame. Who, whenever they had one of their group improv things, would do the whole thing of running across the stage shouting, football, football, football. And it's like, you can only use that so often. That's literally your Hail Mary pass. That's when nothing else is working. This feels a lot like a whole book of someone running across the stage yelling football, football, football. Yep. I remember it was Tom Baker running across my stage. And even though (laughs) what you're expressing is something I've felt about him in the past, somehow it all neutralized. And maybe I had too different an experience here. Well, I've noticed that when Tom Baker does audiobooks, he pulls himself in quite a bit. Yeah, it was actually a pretty dry delivery relative to what I was expecting. Yeah, he has gotten better about that. Even when he listened to the audiobook of Scratchman, which he himself was directly responsible for, he's being quite reserved with it. And yet he's still giving just a bravado performance as the doctor at the same time. So I imagine listening to this on audio, in fact, come to think of it, when I was calling Goodreads for reviews of this, almost all of them were about the audiobook, and those were the highest reviews. Mm. So I envy your experience there, and I'm half tempted. If it weren't for the fact that I just really don't want to see this book ever again, (laughs) I would go and download the uh, audio and listen to it just for the experience. But, you know, 
don't know. What else did we like or dislike about this particular one? I felt both about the fact that the Tylonians are actually vegetarians. And, you know, because the ambassadors ask, you know, if you're not skulking, why are you eating people? We're not, you're not eating them. We're vegetarians. But how long has he been making the same mistake where he tries to communicate telepathically with people and runs them over instead? Yeah. It, uh, 15 yeah. So years. I thought it was years. actually an interesting uh, concept at first, but he keeps doing it. And that <laughs> that might uh, summarize some of the, the strengths and weaknesses of the book in some ways. Yes. So. Well, especially since that shield that allows him to communicate has been in Adrasta's chambers this whole time. And apparently you just need to touch it to be controlled by it, or at least subconsciously in the book on screen the miners turn into zombies bringing it down to the mines oh and speaking of things that are scientifically just ridiculous Arado is using the doctor's larynx and then ramona's larynx and then adrasta's larynx and then k9's something yeah <laughs> yeah to communicate because tythonians don't have them how is that forming words that are in any way intelligible? Because it's not just the larynx that you use to form words. You have to have the entire mechanism of the mouth and the throat and the tongue and the teeth and the lips and all the juicy bits. Yeah. And Arado apparently has plenty of juicy bits. But oh, yeah. It needs more than that. So it's one of those bits that even with this longer version of the explanation because it's longer on the page everything that Arado says is longer on the page he's much more talkative on the page almost entertainingly so but then sometimes not hmm. i thought it was entertaining because he is as annoying as the doctor can be oh yeah in a way that i i thought was funny and worked yeah and it's not just because he's using the doctor's larynx it's he's that talkative whereas the delivery that both tom baker and lala ward and i am forgetting her name but the really great actress who plays adrasta when they do arado's delivery and for that matter when david Brierley does it as canine it's a very flat affectless delivery which makes sense here it's not. <laughs> Thought work of the ambassador is dismissive of the, the inhabitants of this planet as quite savage. And his contrasting sophistication is he's terribly embarrassed and regretful that he'll be destroying them all soon. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I really don't want to talk about it. And, uh, you know, we really should be going now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it kind of worked as dark humor that he's not really much better. He's just not personally brutal in quite the same way well there was that one person but you know she's the one who put him there <laughs> yeah that bit is actually handled better in the book because to be honest that whole subplot with the neutron star feels very much tacked on on screen it feels like there are only three and a half episodes worth of material and they have to get through another half episode somehow so they've got to track down the neutron drive, which the miners have taken. And there's the Corella trying to get the miners on her side so she can take over. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, let's just get this over with. Which is probably why when we get to the end of this book, you have the textbook abrupt ending. It literally just stops. It stops. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm so accustomed to that by now. I don't even complain about it anymore. Well, it's unusual for anybody who's seen the TV version, because that's not where the TV version ends. You still get that line about that being the Doctor's lucky number, but that's not the last line of the story. They actually have another scene on Chloris before they head out. So it's like, uh... Yeah, I feel like most stories, there's at least some kind of, like, goodbye or... You know, they thank the doctor for saving them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get a new companion out of it. You say somebody sneaks on Yeah, there's something. Away. It's not them literally, like, rematerializing and just talking like, yep, we're just lucky today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's for dinner? Because so there was really no what's for dinner. But... Even an avoidance of goodbyes is usually worthy of a paragraph or so. Right. We get something. But this is just like, they saved the day. you talked about it is supposed to be a story where the stakes are not all of corporeal reality or something like that so it's it's okay for it to have a light ending but i i did actually think that my audio had been cut off did you really i'm used to abrupt endings to the story but you're right there usually is a little bit more of a of a wrap-up in the last couple of pages even if the plot has been you know and then they punch them in the face and beat them with a stick and then everything was fine <laughs> there is usually but you're right uh, a bit of a goodbye after that yeah it's so abrupt when the rest of the book has been well clever and expansive and sometimes even verbose and then it's over at the very end it's it's the weirdest thing we were talking earlier about just the kind of sheer um ferocity of it i guess there's the pit when corella kills torvin and it says torvin looked down in astonishment to see the point of the knife emerge from his chest tempered steel he murmured in surprise and died i I did think he was sort of admiring the craftsmanship yeah Yeah, kind of just even as he's dying, he's mesmerized by the metal. It's actually interesting that that character comes off as better on the page because on screen, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how to put this because other reviewers have noted it, and I'm trying to put it in terms that don't sound awful. The actor is giving a very stereotypically Jewish performance of that character. It's kind of like Fagan from David Copperfield. In fact, that's specifically what he's doing. So that there's a lot of, you know, oh, this is lovely, this is lovely. And with this, just uh, all of those terrible overtones of usury and so on and so forth and i'm sure it was amusing at the time but it was certainly noticeable on screen and these days you look at that performance and you're like really did you have to go there i'm just waiting for the angry comments Egan is oliver twist <laughs> yeah it's it's not that the story is being anti-semitic it's not that the actor's being anti-semitic because i don't think the actor was indeed anti-semitic at all i think he was in, in fact jewish but it's got that feel to it and that feel thank god is not on the page i would never have guessed that yeah it's just not there which is good <laughs> because the story needs quite a bit to save it from what we get on screen despite jeffrey Bailden and eileen lay being in it i mean god they are tremendous i actually did visualize the entire guest cast as being tremendous mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, they're great. And again, Adrasta, who's the name of the actress, I didn't put in, in my notes, and I don't know why I didn't do that, but she is just marvelous. Even the guy who controls the wolf weeds with a whip, he gets more dialogue on screen. And even he's really decent in that small, thankless role. And it's like, oh... Why, then, did you have to bring these talented people together for this, which still is better on the page? They came to, uh, what is it, eat assorted astrologers. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Anything else, strong, weak, or otherwise? I just like the note about Erato being sent as the ambassador because he was rather handsome. (laughs) If he did say so himself, yes. Yeah. (laughs) And I love that. I really do. Especially since you have to wonder why creatures that take hundreds of years to reproduce would even care about somebody being handsome if they just roll into them and say, oh, excuse me, Ted. Hey, you want to copulate? Sure. I can't find the the passage but it says like their society has come to a point where they are just focused on like art and philosophy or art and you know just nothing bad they they just lay around all day like (laughs) oh god what's the name of the bot in futurama oh bender no (laughs) no there's another one there's uh oh wait the one that looks like uh who eats grapes all the time yeah it's, it's supposed to be like bacchus um Oh, I can't remember the name of that character either. Either way, I'm just, yeah, just imagining a society of these big, fat monsters just like, <laughs> you know, laying on the beach, enjoying the sulfuric rain. <laughs> so, so strange. And so it's stuff like that, that that's funny to me, but it didn't have to be like overkill the way it was. It could have been much more interesting. And again, I have to keep saying to those who love this book, it is better on the page, but it also comes across as a little bit cloying at times, understandably. All right. Anything else we wanted to say? Because this may be a short one. (laughs) Unlike Arado. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I know I had to go there. There are some quality insults. Uh, It's taken all of Taven's inconsiderable powers of persuasion. And uh, you have pined apology for a non-entity. Those are both (laughs) some that will go into my repertoire of things I will think and after the fact and never deliver. There's one on screen where Ramana calls them a very hirsute bunch, and she has to explain what the word hirsute means. <laughs> Early on, there's a description that says, The TARDIS itself was a multidimensional vehicle, which meant that parts of it tended to exist in various times and in different dimensions. Oh, yeah. You might clear out a cupboard now, and five minutes later find it full of the most outlandish objects, which had appeared from you <laughs> you had no idea where or when. Yes, and I love that... That's the first time any of the authors of these books have thought about the TARDIS that way. But you can imagine just how insane it would be to have to spend any amount of time in the TARDIS if parts of it were suddenly shifting in and out of different times and different dimensions, though it makes perfect sense for it to do so. Mm -hmm. And if they find some old male marked urgent. Yes. (laughs) And the jawbone of an ass, which is supposed to be a uh, biblical allusion believe it or not. (laughs) Ramana asks what the doctor's going to do with the jawbone of an ass, and he replies, don't be a Philistine. That's like, oh. (laughs) 
I missed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's in the book. The Jawbone is. I don't think the Philistine line is. It's an entirely different book. Well, no, that's not true. I was going to say it's entirely different than the televised story. It's not. It's just greatly expanded, hugely, and footnoted to death. Which is interesting because it's not very long. No, it isn't. And I think that's why we had the abrupt ending. I think that is David Fisher saying, okay, I'm going to be as clever and delightful as I want, and I'm just going to cut off that ending when I get to the page count because they're not paying me for more than this. It could have used like a paragraph more, though. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems so strange to cut it off the way that it is after you've spent so much time giving us all these unnecessary details in the whole yeah. rest of the book mm -hmm. like you couldn't give me one more paragraph yeah in fact the only other book i can think of that feels more abrupt and which really did need that was the green death when joe grant leaves it doesn't feel like she's doing anything more than saying oh bye doctor and then he's gone well and then you showed us that scene that had me in tears yes that's the actual episode which is much different Mm-hmm. Precisely. And you think, Malcolm Hulk, you should know better. Well, here we have another very clever writer who doesn't know when to stop and also doesn't know when to keep when going. to go on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Lordy. Shall we go to Goodreads? Let us saunter yes. on over there. <laughs> okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we can have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.46. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Stephen Andriechen gives it 4 stars and says, I have once again been saddled with a story that has a rather poor reputation, but I think that this is the result of poor execution on screen because this book is fantastic. The characterization is fantastic, especially for the Doctor and Romana. I agree. The flow from spoken to reported dialogue and thoughts, while it can be a bit unclear, helps to really understand the character's motives and backstory. I'm glad he pointed that out. I didn't even point out that every once in a while Fisher will go to reported dialogue, which I usually hate. It's not so bad here. The footnotes are a welcomed inclusion as they are fun little asides that both help with world building and provide lots of laughs. Overall, this is a very good book. Wrong. I was going to say, he's going to make a hissing noise. He did not welcome them. Yeah, okay, okay, well. I want to know who's saddling Stephen with books. Yes, exactly. Dave Davies, on the other hand, gives it 2.5 stars and says, right from the first chapter, if a prologue can be called a chapter, I was annoyed by this book. It was the word refractory that did it. <laughs> what a useless word. I've never used it, nor am I likely to. It has legitimate uses. It's right that children or anyone else should be challenged by their reading matter, and it's good to expand one's vocabulary, but that word strikes me as being mere jargon and only included in order to show off. I didn't spot any other such pointless words, but then I was rushing a little to get it over with. Even so, 
The theme of showing off continued, and I couldn't help Fisher's disdain in an earlier novelization of one of his stories for Terrence Dick's writing. Even on a bad day, however, Dix knew how to tell a story, and while he did have very good days, had no need to add flourishes and obscure words. I didn't really enjoy it much, but I know there's worse to come, and I need to leave some space between this book and the nadir that is Doctor Who and the Pescatons. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. And finally, Bronwyn gives it three stars and says, I don't read novelizations very often, but Alex, whoever Alex is, got a free copy of this with an issue of Doctor Who magazine, and since it's one of my favorite stories from the TV show, I decided to read it. It was okay. I assume Alex is the one making all these people read this book. He just <laughs> marauds around, handing out copies, and you get a prize if you complete it and do a I, review on Goodreads. I guess Nobody so. likes it. And she says, it was okay. Pretty much what you'd expect from a novelization, but with a few cute facts about the planet Chloris thrown in that weren't in the TV episodes. It was also cool to compare the creature from the show with what the writer originally had in mind. David Fisher wrote the TV episodes as well as the novelization, so I imagine he included in the book everything the budget wouldn't allow for in the show. Well, I don't know that a lengthy dissertation on the mating habits of Tythonians could ever have been realized on any budget, but there you go. So, <laughs> Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'll give this one a strong three, because even though I was annoyed with it, it is well written. There were a lot of good character moments that I liked, and it didn't feel like there was anything missing. Mm-hmm. You know, there there weren't bits where I was like, what what the hell's going on here? It did just feel like everything and the kitchen sink was thrown in to this, <laughs> which, again, I don't feel like added anything to it, but it's not written poorly. Mm-hmm. So even though the story annoyed me, the writing isn't bad. <laughs> so I'll give it a three. <laughs> okay, that's fair. And Allison? I'm going to go 2.5, which is, you know, obviously much lower, even though I think I enjoyed it a lot more. As per usual, this is pretty subjective because I did get a different experience, and it sounds like between the episode, the novelization, and the novelization read aloud by Tom Baker, I got the best possible experience from it. So I actually found it, you know, fun and silly, but, you know, verbally clever because the delivery was first rate. Okay. And as for me, I'm going to go right down the middle and say 3.5, because while I didn't appreciate it quite as much as Stephen did, I didn't hate it as much as Dave did. I have to give it that 0.5 because it is clever, and when it hits all cylinders, it really hits them hard, and it does it really well. But then every once in a while, Fisher has to prove himself the cleverest guy in the room, And when Douglas Adams does that, you still feel it, but he's at least right about that. He is the cleverest man in the room. Whereas when David Fisher does it, it does feel a bit like showing off, and that happens every once in a while. It certainly made a story that is very difficult to enjoy on screen, despite the star power in it, and despite the giant green phallus, much more enjoyable on the page. So I'll give it a 3.5. So, thank you both. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're doing an April Fool's special 
looking at a book that is not a Target novelization and not a novelization of a televised story when we do D.R. Who and the Daleks by Alan Smithy. If you need a copy of it, there is a link on our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. You'll be able to download it there. In the meantime... If you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.